Hello, I'm Bill Redman. Hi, Tony Faust here. And I'm Kevin Yeo. Welcome to Odin and Aesop, the podcast where we review and discuss military history books to help understand the events and ideas of the past. Some of these events and ideas shape our world today. If you're interested in learning more about the show, want to get a hold of us, or provide some feedback, please visit our website where we've got links to related material and contact information. Just Google OdinandAesop.com, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter. Good evening, everyone. In episode 14 of the Odin Aesop podcast, we will review I Will Hold by James Nelson. The book is about the World War I experiences of Clifton Cates. Cates would go on to be a general officer in the Marine Corps and ultimately the commandant of the Marine Corps following World War II. As a second lieutenant, Cates was in the 6th Marine Regiment and fought in the pivotal battles that turned the tide of World War I and ultimately brought the end to the war. Nelson uses Cates' experiences as a vehicle to put readers on some of the most famous battlefields of France during World War I, places like Belleau Wood and the Argonne Forest. The book is well written and provides readers a real sense of how horrific World War I was for the men who had to fight it. Readers will come away with a much better understanding what it was like to endure a 12-hour gas attack or spend days being shelled by an enemy that just wouldn't give up. Another fascinating aspect of the book is the junior officers and sergeants that you see in this book all end up being senior leaders within the Marine Corps during World War II. So you get some insight into what they were like at the start of their long and illustrious careers. The book is highly recommended if you're interested in learning a little bit more about World War I or life in the Old Corps. This is the first book we've reviewed on World War I, and we're excited about the discussion it will generate tonight. So how was everyone's Christmas, Bill? I know you've been out there baking up a storm, to much to your neighbor's delight. Uh, well, you're right about that. It's on King Arthur flour recipes yet again, and baked up some chocolate hazelnuts stolen to hand out as part of the Christmas gift giving. I think it turned out pretty well. Also got boosted, got a Max the Vax, did that, and spent yesterday assembling the uh, master-built smoker to replace the Weber bullet that just kind of reached the end of the life cycle, and then did the usual eating and drinking too much with all the neighbors and friends in the neighborhood and everything. So it's all good, but uh, that's what I got going on. Having the new smoker should really up your game in terms of a slow cooked meat. As a matter of fact, that thing's going to, we're going to start testing that thing within the next seven days. I've already, I got to be trading emails with a few of the other fellows in the neighborhood because I I sense a barbecue throwdown coming our way. So uh, you're right, it's on. Uh, But anyhow, Kevin, how about you? What do you got? You know, good Christmas here in the villages in Florida. But, you know, I've been doing some reading on split personalities, schizophrenia, uh, because, yeah, I picked up golf and trying to get consistent, but I just can't figure out who's showing up on any given day. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, the other thing I've been doing is trying to make some travel plans for this spring with the, the daughter getting married out in Seattle. Uh, I'd like to see some of the coast uh, in that area. So any listeners who have some recommendations for sightseeing in Seattle or Portland, you know, maybe Bill, I think you were out there for a little bit. More than a little bit. Um, those were the formative years. Don't know if they've renamed any landmarks after me yet, but 
more than happy to hook you up with some recommendations on things to do, uh, places to see out in the great Northwest. It might might involve, you know, the Rainier Beer Brewery and logging roads and stuff, but uh, I, I can hook you up, man. Yeah, I'm not sure that Kevin's really looking for uh, old refrigerators on logging roads so that he can shoot them with uh, homemade cannons. Um, I'm not really sure that's what he's trying to get uh, done, Bill. You know, if he were, and he probably should, again, I could hook him up. We could even go back and, uh, you know, visit Metal Shop where we constructed these things. Just putting it out there as an offer, Kevin. Hey, thank you. You know, Nathan's home from college so we've got him in the house eating us out of house and home which is a good thing and the older one is out in la he decided not to come um which is fine too he he's got stuff to do so i get it and why would you go to michigan when you could stay in 70 degree la so i'm totally down for that while i was uh in preparation for the holidays i did uh, get on amazon prime and found a documentary about admiral rickover which motivated me to pick up a copy of norman uh polymer's book on rickover which is this huge tome i got on amazon for like five bucks it was like unbelievably good deal i am now in my learn more about rickover which is a fascinating subject in and of itself yeah i gotta jump in on that one first off I know the book you're talking about. I don't know if I'm ready to tackle it, but uh, we should be careful mentioning Rickover's name because we might summon the man's ghost and might just be too much for me to bear right now. But a lot of people don't know it. Rickover's known for being the guy that designed and built the reactor to fit in a submarine. And then he's also known for not only designing and building the reactor because you just don't walk away from that you also have to pick and train the people to operate it and figure out how it's going to be operated it's all part of that continuum of how this thing works so the entire nuclear navy he's the father of it but a lot of people don't realize just how rickover thought a lot about education and he thought a lot about education in america and it's pretty interesting read he had some strong ideas on the whole subject he wrote three books on education in america and what it should be because he was really concerned about having enough technically capable people to fight the cold war not only in the the nuclear navy side but across the entire spectrum of science and engineering so he was very, very interested in education. He wrote three books on it. I have two of them. Both of them are excellent. And they really are just as relevant today as they were in the 1950s and 60s when he wrote them. So that's fascinating. This guy was thinking STEM uh, back before it was cool to think STEM. And he was thinking a lot about it. Okay. Well, with that said, so Tony, we get any mail this month? We did. We got an email from Philip Wilson, who lives in Los Angeles, California. He enjoys the podcast and was happy to see we did a book on Vietnam. Um, But his question is about the M16. He said, the three of you talked about the M16 being new and revolutionary, but what was different about the 5.56 round versus the 30-06? And why did the U.S. take its approach and the Soviet Union take a different approach? Well, Tony, I think that's a great question, but it's a couple parts, really. So let's take the first part. The 30-odd-6, that was the cartridge. And the difference between that and the 5.56 is that the 30-odd-6 used in the M14 and M1 was roughly a 150-grain bullet traveling at 2,700 feet per second, while the 5.56 
which is the M16, that's about a 55 grain bullet. So only about a third the weight or third the size. And it's traveling slightly faster at around 3,000 feet. So one, we have heavy and slow. And the other, we have fast. Okay, the M16 is fast. But the, really, the other part of the question is, why did they take a different approach? Well, to answer that, we got to go back to World War II. At the end of World War II, both the Soviets and the Americans are starting to get ready for the next war. And they both liked what they saw in the German MP43, which was a the first really modern assault rifle. And an assault rifle is a fully automatic weapon. And it's used at ranges 300 yards and less is what the idea is. And it's slightly less powerful than the 30-odd-6, okay, or the full-sized battle rifle. The assault rifle is that what they're trying to do is have that in-between. It's not a it's not a machine gun, but it's not a rifle. And what they liked about it was that it was very controllable. It was lightweight. It was small, and it's firing an intermediate cartridge. So the ba- Soviets basically went with the 30 caliber bullet, shrunken as far as in its length, and that gave it about a 110 grain sized uh, projectile and down to about 2,200 feet per second. So same diameter, slightly less. The U.S. went fast and they went with the 5.56, which again is fast and light. And they liked that. I believe that the Soviets probably went with the 30 caliber bullet because that was easier for them to manufacture and adapt from what they are what they already were doing. The other thing that's imp- interesting about this is that both of the Soviets and the Americans were trying to get a tumbling effect when the bullet hit the flesh, and. What they did was they played with that spin rate, and by either overspinning or underspinning, when the bullet would hit the flesh, they'd get it to tumble. Well, the the downside of that with the M16 was that it uh, decreased the accuracy past that 300-yard mark. Well, McNamara, not understanding what they were trying to do, he... Uh, said we've got to increase the spin rate because we want it accurate out to 600 yards. Well, when he did that, that ruined the tumbling effect. And so those initial rounds that the M16 was firing uh, during the Vietnam War were really trying to go just bore straight through. And that wasn't the design that they were attempting. And so it it slightly screwed that up. Today, they're, they're constantly tinkering and changing and we're seeing that the Army is coming out with the uh, the 6.8. And if they looked back in history, they'd see that that's really not a whole lot different than what the Soviets were doing in the 60s. Well, my only point on this whole thing is uh, if you look at the you know M1, M14, 7.62 bullet, it's about the size of your index finger. If you look at the M16 5.56 round. It's about the size of your pinky. You can fit them both in the palm of your hand. And it's like, okay, you look at that and it's, well, that's not that big a difference. But the implications of that change 
are huge. They go all the way back and through the industrial base. You have to go back and not just change the bullet. You have to change the machine making the bullet. And you've got to figure out what you're going to do with your, I don't know, millions of old bullets and replace them with millions of new bullets and uh, train up everyone in the difference. So it's not as simple as, oh, we're going to, a country's going to change its bullet and they, you know, run down to the sporting goods store and buy a box of rifle ammunition. It goes all the way back to the factory and the tools that are making the bullets in the factory. It's it's pretty big shift. Uh, so uh, we'll see what happens if they go to the six point eight. Yeah, more to follow. The army's projecting that it's going to take them all the way out to twenty twenty three before they can start fielding it, just because of the logistics train. And they are adding a uh, a new dimension with a, a polymer case uh, to that round. Yeah, you know, no rifle is perfect for every situation. And one of the things that makes small arms selection and changes so difficult is everybody's got an opinion. It's like I talked about this before. It's just like a boot, right? Everybody knows what the best boot is, and they have these hard opinions on it. But on a weapon, it's even worse. And so, like you just talked about, Kevin, there's a myriad of factors that go into that selection. And and you have to balance those different dimensions to try to get an optimal solution. And no rifle is an optimal solution for every environment. There's always going to be naysayers. There were people that said, oh, the M16 is a horrible weapon and it can never, it'll never work. And, and then, well, they made some changes to what the weapon that came out in, in Vietnam, and it turned out to be a very, very good weapon from my perspective. But there were still people in the 80s and 90s and all the way up through the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that were saying, oh, you know, this weapon is bad because of these different factors. And you can never get the perfect weapon for every situation. And so you always have naysayers. You always have critics. I'm sure when the 6.8 comes out, there's going to be other critics who say it should be 7.62 or it should be 5.56 or, or whatever. And you'll never get everybody on board. It's just a fact of weapon selection. So the beat goes on on this. I mean, it's it's universal and it's timeless. Phil, thanks for the question uh, that generated some, I think, some interesting discussion amongst the three of us. I think we all have some opinion on this, at least on the introduction of this 6.8 uh, millimeter round into the inventory and what that will do. But anyways... Bill, why don't you get us off and running tonight by giving us some operational context into what we're going to be talking about during our discussion? When World War I started in the middle of 1914, it immediately turned into an industrial age nightmare. The French suffered over 260,000 casualties in the first month. They lost 27,000 killed on a single day in August 1914. That's just the French. The German, British, Russian, Serb, and Austro-Hungarian armies also suffered huge losses, and things didn't let up as the war went on. By the time it all ended, there were roughly 40 million casualties. The United States looked at the carnage in Europe and initially decided to stay out of it, but staying neutral got complicated for the United States as time went on. One complicating factor was the United States had commercial interests in Europe. These included lending money and selling goods needed to keep European war machines going. While the British could declare and enforce a blockade on Germany, the Germans didn't have a navy big enough to blockade the British Empire. Just wasn't happening. The Germans used a submarine fleet to interdict commerce instead. 
This hurt American business. It also produced 128 American deaths and increased tension when the passenger ship Lusitania was sunk in May 1915. Staying neutral got even more difficult for the United States. By early 1917, it was clear Tsarist Russia was on the brink of revolution. Since the Russians were ready to start fighting each other, the Germans saw they no longer faced a Russian threat in the east, and they moved the hundreds of thousands of troops from they had there from the eastern front to the western front in France. The Germans also decided to resume unrestricted submarine warfare in February 1917. They knew this would likely cause the United States to enter the war, but the Germans figured they had a real chance to win the war once and for all. Their submarines would hurt the Allies, while they could use their influx of troops to launch a war-winning offensive before the United States could do anything worthwhile to help the British and French. After all, the United States was not a huge military power, so the Germans correctly figured it would take a while before the United States could field any real army in Europe. The German plan was to have won the war by then. The last straw came in early March 1917 when it became publicly known the Germans had tried to convince Mexico to attack the United States in exchange for German support and concessions. This offer was made in the Zimmerman telegram, which the British intercepted and turned over to the United States. So neutrality was no longer a realistic option. The United States declared war on April 6, 1917. Going to war in Europe meant the United States had to recruit, train, organize, equip, and deploy hundreds of thousands of young men. One of them was Marine Lieutenant Clifton Cates. Cates was part of the 6th Marine Regiment. The 6th and 5th Marines were assigned to the Army's 2nd Infantry Division. Remember all those troops the Germans had brought over from the Russian front for their big war-winning offensive? Well, the Germans launched that offensive, the Kaiser Battle, in the spring of 1918. Initially, the Germans did advance, but the Allies, including the two Marine regiments with Kate, stopped them. Now the Germans were hurting. Their best effort had been stopped, and they had absolutely nothing left. The initiative passed over to the Allies, including the Marines and Kate's, who launched their own offensive, the Hundred Day Offensive. That led to Germany seeking the armistice that ended the war on November 11, 1918. And that's what this book centers on, Kate's involvement in the Great War from the spring of 1918 until it ended that fall. With all that said, I'll kick it back over to Tony for his review of the book. Excellent scene setter for tonight's discussion, Bill. Before we go any further, let me provide the listeners my review of tonight's book, I Will Hold by James Nelson. This is the first book we've read that covers World War I. Of all the wars we've read about, World War I always invokes the most striking images for me. When I think of World War I, muddy, rat-infested trenches, waves of men attacking fortified trench systems, day-long artillery bombardments, and men dying horrible deaths under gas attack all immediately come to mind. I Will Hold captures all of these images in a manner that isn't overbearing, but clearly depicts what it was like to fight in 1918. The author uses Clifton Cates and his experiences as a Marine lieutenant in France as a canvas to describe the American World War I experience. Lucky Cates got his moniker by being one of those people that seems to be right in the middle of every major engagement, but never get seriously wounded. This affords him a front row seat to history at the tactical level. From the Marine Corps perspective, he fought in every major engagement that the Corps participated in during the war. From Bella Wood to Meuse-Argonne, 
Cates fought with the 96th Company of 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines. Although he was a lieutenant throughout the war, he spent most of his time in combat acting as a company commander because the captains above him kept getting wounded or killed. Because of when Cates joined the Marine Corps, he was an eyewitness to a period of Marine history that is both important and interesting. Prior to World War I, the Marine Corps was extremely small. The author describes it as being a secret society or a sparsely populated fraternity that sent its members all over the world to operate alone and unafraid. Its members were almost all lifers. Cates joined the Corps during a period of explosive growth. He participated in the establishment of Paris Island. For those non-Marines listening to this episode, Paris Island is the installation where all enlisted Marines east of the Mississippi go to recruit training. It is legendary in that it provides a common experience that ties generations of Marines together. Cates was there when the recruits built their own barracks and dug an extensive latrine system between drill sessions. Basically, the book provides readers an opportunity to see what life was like in the embryonic state of the modern Marine Corps. Readers will come away with a decent understanding of what the old Corps was really like. The heart of the book is the descriptions of the combat experiences of Cates. Because he was never seriously wounded, Cates stays with his company throughout the entire war. This also meant that he had to experience all the horrors of World War I combat. The description of Cates and his company as they advance across a wheat field in order to get into Bella Wood was especially well written you really get a feel for what moving across an open field was like that was covered by machine guns. However, the most graphic portions of the book center around a nighttime artillery bombardment and muster gassing that Cates had to endure during the fight for Bella Wood. The following is an excerpt from this portion of the book. At times I wish that an artillery shell would knock me off, but life was so very sweet, even at its worst. Cates had almost lost it as the shells came down and he reached for his gas mask and found only his tunic. He suddenly remembered he'd left his mask in a hole 15 feet away. But with the darkness and the gas-laden mist and the shrapnel tearing the air apart, there was no hope of finding it. Panic rising in his throat, he crawled desperately amid the poisonous fumes, searching for the only thing that would save his life. Then he remembered Virgil Hall, the red-headed private who had come across a German gas mask back in Beresh and taken it as a souvenir. Hall, Kate yelled. Private Hall! Came a muffled reply. Here I am, sir. Sir, I'm here. Cates groped in the darkness towards Hall's voice and asked him where the German gas mask was. Hall handed it over. Cates wound up wearing it for the next five hours, all but suffocated and blind, but alive. The author describes the whole experience of being gassed from the actual attack through the hospital recovery if a Marine was fortunate enough to survive the experience. When the artillery bombardment finally ended, only Cates and a handful of Marines remained of what had once been the 96th Company. One of the interesting aspects of the book is that it highlights the effect of sustained combat has on everyone. At the start of the book, Cates is an idealistic, bulletproof young man that wants to be in the fight. Initially, combat is a thrilling experience for him, and he can't get enough of it. However, after several battles, he finds himself isolated without knowing anyone in his company. All the people he started the war with are no longer there. Within three months of getting to France, his company has lost everyone that it started the war with. Cates goes through this process three times during the book. He was the one constant in the company that was rebuilt with replacements, only to lose them all in the next fight. As he goes through this process over and over again, combat, fatigue, and the misery of battle wears him down. By November 1918, he's exhausted, sick, 
and no longer down for the fight. He just wants his Marines to survive the war so they can go home and put it all behind them. You see this in passages of the book like this. Frozen, drenched and sick. Sick of war now. Sick of death. Just sick. The war was damn near over, but there was one more river to cross. More men to be slaughtered. But there was no spring in the step now. No novelty. The war was old, and Clifton Cates was sick of it. Clifton Cates was just sick, period. His men dropped one by one. They dropped in bunches, not from German bullets or shells, but disease, from the elements, and Clifton Cates was ready to drop as well. Further on in the book, the author sums it up in this way. Between April and November 11th, the 96th Company suffered more casualties than any other company in the AEF. More than 600 members of the company had fallen. 131 of them would never rise again, a casualty rate of 250%. Of the 250 men that trained with Cates in Quantico, 52 had been killed and another 188 wounded. 50 of those wounded more than once. Only a handful came through unscathed, among them Lucky Clifton Cates. Overall, I think the book was really well-researched. The author used an extensive collection of General Cates' letters that are contained in the Clifton Papers, which are held in the Marine Corps archives. And he used those letters as the foundation for the book. Although World War I is a much more challenging subject to write on, I think Nelson's done a fantastic job in his research and produced a book that readers will both learn from and enjoy reading. As I mentioned before, readers will get a real insight into the old Corps and see that many of the most historically significant figures in the Marine Corps start their career during this period. I highly recommend this book and think you'll enjoy reading it. So that's my review. Bill, Kevin, what were your impressions and takeaways from the book? Tony, uh, I'll, I'll, let me speak there first. I, I really liked it. I, I think the book's a, a who's who of the significant players uh, in the Marine Corps that we're going to uh, see in World War II. Uh, these are the guys that were young officers in France, and they were exposed to some horrific, brutal combat and it really shaped their outlooks for the rest of their career and during the combat operations in the Pacific. Uh, remember the episode in Neptune's Inferno and how we talked about the Marines holding the airfield? Well, the leaders knew how to hold a position from World War I. They dug in, they established the machine guns in the Artie, and they knew that that was the key to holding a, a, a position. I, I can't speak enough on how this period shaped World War II and shaped our leaders. So I love the book. Yeah, I agree. It was interesting to see all the names in there and see them as platoon, company, and battalion commanders. And then those are the people in Camp Lejeune and Camp Pendleton who have streets named after them. I just thought that was interesting. And sometimes, like when you're driving down Holcomb Boulevard in Camp Lejeune, you're like, who the hell's Holcomb, right? Well, he was a battalion commander in World War I and then went on to do you know, what he did pre-World War II and et cetera, et cetera. So it was interesting to see that what, they, what those officers were doing and the NCOs were doing 25 years before uh, World War II. So, Bill, what were your thoughts? 
Two things jumped out at me. First one is, you know, in the Marine Corps, you always hear about, oh, back in the old Corps, like, you know, two weeks ago or whatever. But straight up, this is the old Corps. And it is a ground level view into who these guys were and how they did things. And so I found that very interesting. Uh, The other thing that jumped out at me at this thing was this is a period of transition in history. There's aspects of what's going on in this book that uh, guys from the American Civil War would recognize, you know, with horse-drawn supply wagons, guys riding around on horses, and guys hanging in balloons with telescopes, or sitting in trenches just like they were in Petersburg. So there's parts in there that guys in the Civil War would recognize. But there's parts in this book that we'd recognize today. You know, airplanes shooting at each other, shooting at guys on the ground, indirect artillery. So a couple of those things seem to intersect here, uh, and it jumped out at me. But with that said, why don't we transition and talk about a couple of the technologies that are kind of emerging at the embryonic stage here. This is really a period of transition. There's stuff in this book that people would recognize from the American Civil War, specifically horse-drawn supply wagons, guys riding around on horseback leading columns of troops. There's guys suspended in balloons with telescopes. There's all that that if you were sitting in a trench in Petersburg outside Richmond and 1860, whatever, you would recognize all that. But there's also stuff in this book that we'd recognize today. There's airplanes fighting airplanes. There's airplanes attacking guys on the ground. There's indirect artillery fire. So it just strikes me that because there's on the different sides of history, people would recognize it looking forward and looking back on this thing. It really is a transition point. And uh, along with that, All these technologies, they're at least there in the embryonic stage, but they're developing at different rates. You want to talk about a rate? Talk about the machine gun. I mean, we went, what, within 100 years through the Civil War, musket loading, to all of a sudden we've got, uh, in the entrance into World War I, we've already got machine guns. And now, at the beginning of the war, most of the machine guns were what I would call in the defensive mode. So the British and Germans are using a Maxim, and it is a machine, and it's a water-cooled machine. It's heavy. It's got a huge crew behind it, but it's pumping out rounds around that four to 500 rounds per minute, and it just does not quit. And it takes the place of hundreds of guys firing their rifles. So all of a sudden you have a crew of let's say 10 to 12 guys manning that machine gun. And it takes that many guys to get the ammunition up to it, keep it running and provide some local security. Now that position then can take, like I said, take the place of 100 to 200 riflemen in the defense. So it's a huge game changer in freeing up forces. But now they it's also in the infancy because they don't have a lightweight machine gun that really works that well. Now John Browning comes on to the to the game. 
he introduces a water-cooled machine gun that's used uh, by the American forces and later on becomes one of the most popular machine guns in the world. Uh, it's a water-cooled 30 cal. And we see his designs even used today uh, in the famous M2 50 caliber, which was also introduced at the end of World War One. But I think the key thing as far as when we talk about transitioning is how it reduces the importance of the rifle and how in prior to World War One, the riflemen were expected to have volley fire and area fire and be able to engage targets past that five to six hundred yard mark. Uh, we saw it in the British uh, Boer War, how they engaged the British at ranges up to 2,000 yards with the seven millimeter Mauser. And they did it with their volley fire and an area target. The machine gun negates all of that, doesn't need it anymore. And as our listener called in that question, that's why we see the assault rifle becoming uh, on, the, on the stage or on the scene uh, later in World War II and Vietnam. But the, the machine gun is, is just a, a, a huge deal. I believe it's the second most uh, casualty producer. And in this war, it goes from a defensive weapon into the assault mode. And now, uh, later on in warfare, it is one of the prime systems in, the, in everything. Yeah, what's interesting to me about the machine guns in World War One is it machine gunnery, I think, is almost at its zenith in World War One. I mean, I think we can all remember when we were going through the infantry officer course when they would show us how to shoot machine guns in an indirect mode, just like artillery. And it's a lost art that we don't really do today. And they were really, really good at it. There's also stories about, I think it was a Canadian machine gun company where they had a gun shoot a million rounds straight because like you were saying, Kevin, it was a water-cooled gun. So you can fire indefinitely. It won't overheat. And those combination of skills and weapon systems really made machine gunnery a real art, and they had mastered it in World War I. If the machine gun showed up as a mechanically reliable, very effective blunt object ready to be taken out of the box and used, which they did, kind of on the other end of the spectrum are, are airplanes. But all the military showed up with their version of aircraft. But the airplane had only been around a little over 10 years. And it was a wooden frame covered in canvas, powered by a lawnmower engine, and they were not that reliable. And in terms of individual performance, yeah, there was a lot of room for improvement and that would come. But so they showed up, these things were unarmed, but they recognized potential for them and they initially used them for reconnaissance and to fly out and find out where the enemy was and uh, for communications. You know, if you look at the, in the U.S., the Army aviation was part of the Signal Corps, but it was pretty limited. Now, that all changed very quickly, and th they were soon used for artillery spotting with great effect. They were used with photographic reconnaissance, and then they started arming these things in all kinds of different ways to bomb people on the ground, to attack other aircraft. And they did this in very short order. 
you know, to use the expression they had to build the airplane while flying it. But anyhow, Cates talks all about that, you know, getting strafed on the ground and firing back with his pistol and, you know, watching dogfights in the air and, you know, watching artillery spotting balloons get taken down. But my point is, aircraft showed up. They weren't that well developed. By the time the war ended, airplanes and air forces were far different. They were here to stay. I think you can make a case easily that uh, aircraft during World War One made the largest leaps technologically. It's pretty remarkable where they started and where they ended at the end of the war. And you know, you go from, like you said, Bill, where they're just had a very limited mission set to very specific specializations and capabilities. So I think that's pretty remarkable. Along that vein, if you look at armor or tanks, you know, they were non-existent when when the war started. There wasn't any tanks to, to speak of. And the British and French, as the war developed, were looking for a system, a technological advancement that would allow them to create the breach in the German trench system so that they could then go exploit it and finish the war. And their answer to that was armor units. However, again, they were still struggling with the technology of the time and the development. And the systems they developed were slow. Just like aircraft, they were maintenance intensive, were very susceptible to breakdown. Both sides figured out pretty quickly, though, although it is a tank and it's you know got armor, it's really not going to protect itself against heavy artillery. And they were able to start to negate that capability early because it didn't have the mobility and shock value that it needs to be really effective. So it was interesting to watch the dual development of aircraft and armor. And you can see that aircraft went further. I think armor started out further behind. But it's very interesting as they're looking for these weapon systems to try to break the deadlock in the trench systems. Probably the one that was the most advanced uh, coming into World War I was the artillery. And it did it produced the most casualties uh, throughout the war. And in the book, when he talks about the artillery use, we see that it's, it's very similar to what we have today. Um, and that's not surprising because the guns are shooting uh, projectiles that are similar in weight to what we have today, similar in distance that what we have today, rates of fire, very similar. I mean, these guys knew what they were doing. Uh, you might see some World War I uh, photographs with the uh, horses pulling the, uh, pulling the guns or pulling the artillery pieces, but that's that transition period. Uh, the gun itself is, is very advanced. The horses, not so much. But what we have also in that time is they develop very detailed planning. And the guns are able to fire indirectly and do linear targets, series targets, uh, linear being spreading the rounds out in like a line and a series, uh, basically engaging targets on sequence. And they also have a timed fire where they're advancing the fire ahead of the infantry as they're walking forward. And Cates mentions that they have a time fire of, uh, I believe it's four minutes to every hundred yards. And so they're going to have the guns firing in front of them and they just have to walk. And this is the theory. You just walk 
right behind the impacts of these shells, and we're going to keep it moving forward. And that highlights the whole problem that they had with the artillery at this time, which was that they didn't have any feedback, any, any feedback that was quick. Now, there were times when they had the balloons up, and from the balloon they would run a wire uh, for a telephone down to the arty battery, and they could adjust their fires very uh, quickly. But for the most part, they didn't have a way to tell the battery what was happening with those rounds. So what was missing was that feedback in the loop that would bring it up to today's standards. You're right. If things like artillery and the machine gun are pretty well advanced, what is really lagging are communication systems. Communications, are they're like the nervous system of the entire organism. And it's what allows the limbs of the big, unwieldy beast to move in a coordinated fashion. The communication systems they were using at the time were not up to the task. If you read things like, you know, America's Lost Battalion, where they're all trapped in the middle of wherever, but they're staking their whole plan on, you know, and communicating with messenger pigeons. Uh, Nothing against pigeons, but just wrapping a short message around a pigeon's leg and throwing it in the air doesn't really seem to be the way to go. If they, they, yeah, they had other mechanisms like you could lay wire. Well, it's subjected to getting cut by artillery and you run into the problem if you've got guys running... If I want to talk to you, I have to go run a wire to you. And then if you want to talk to someone else, you got to go run a wire to that person. So it's not ideal. Or they were doing things like messengers, you know, like Corporal Hitler. He was a messenger. There's problems with that. Like I'm going to tell some guy to go tell some other guy something and then send him out through the artillery barrage or the gas and or the gas attack. Hope that gets through and then wait for the reply to come back from the same guy running back to wherever I sent him off from. So, and yes, they had radio equipment, but it was unreliable and it certainly was not man portable people were figuring out you know how to eavesdrop on it like the germans did against the russians and they're also figuring out how to jam it so it just me comms seems like it is really what is kind of holding up the show in terms of evolution during this time so they tried to do a lot of things to make the thing work and one of them one of the compromises or workarounds is that time fire you were talking about kevin because they couldn't get the communications to work and support them in real time anyhow with all that talk about the technology let's shift over to the tactics how they tried to use this technology as time went on while technology's changing at different rates depending on what technologies you're talking about These guys are still trying to figure out how to use it, and their tactics are changing. The French, the German, the British, they've all been evolving their tactics for several years by the time you get to where this book really starts its narrative, right? You know, all the nations have set up schools, if you will, behind the lines to work on these tactics and come up with ways to break this deadlock that they're in. The British, again, the French, the Germans... They're experimenting with different weapons mixes, with different manpower specialties, how you combine those two and use them tactically to ultimately break through these fortified positions and these trench systems. But it all comes down to 
the fact that the communication systems at the time were limited, just like we just talked about. And that limitation really has a major impact on the effectiveness of these tactical innovations they're trying to come up with. Two specific examples of armies trying new things that come to mind are, you know, the Germans adopted the elastic defense and it was new and that that's just one example and then you know even the russians they got into it with the brusilov offensive designed to use deception less troops and rely on short surprise artillery barrage but that's just you know two examples i think of what you're talking about i think it's also important to remember that even though they have some of them have the schools that are going on behind the lines the, the senior leaders aren't at those schools um, so they're usually one or two generations behind the tactics that's being taught or that's being discovered, if you will. And so there's only a small portion of the leaders that are keeping up with the changes in equipment. And then they have the challenge of disseminating those lessons throughout a million-man army. So that's really tough. And then the, these leaders who aren't that familiar with these new tactics or new the, these new weapons also have the challenge of a scale, okay? It worked good in the test. It worked good on this limited uh, objective, but now we're going to test it. Now we're going to attack on a, a division or a two-division front, and scaling that new tactic with that large a force it, it's just a, a bridge too far. And remember also, these guys only get one chance, maybe two, to try a tactic or to introduce a new weapon before the enemy sees it coming and adapts their tactics or adapts their defense for that. Uh, you know, the first time they tried the tanks, the tank didn't work that well, but it was a test. But the Germans on the other side also saw that tank and said, hey, that thing's probably going to be a lot better next time. We've got to start thinking of what we're, how we're going to counter that. And usually that counter included the finger of death artillery. They're all trying new tactics, new technologies. They're evolving at different rates. Nobody's got the perfect answer. But I think you see where some of this comes together in imperfect solutions in things like our artillery fire support and planning for that. Artie was the big killer. They had gotten real good at photographic reconnaissance. They had gotten a lot better at accuracy and adjustment in using artillery. But the big limiter that kept them from getting much better was communications. They didn't have that real-time reliable communications, so they got as good as they can get. And the whole thing was based on time. They could come up with these extremely complicated fire support plans, but they were all based on plans. So if something changed, the artillery support really wasn't going to change to support the maneuver any better. And that was a limiting factor. Without that communications, uh, there's no feedback loop. They really can't adjust those fires onto the target. You also see them not being able to adjust the fires to keep pace with the attack of the infantry. You know, they try to do it with flares, but every time they send up a flare, the Germans say, oh, look, there's some red flares. And so they start shooting up some red flares, some white flares, and the communications plan just goes, you know, downhill from there. They throw some pigeons out, but 
you know, the Germans know how to shoot pigeons. So it's just not working that well without the radio. And by 1918, the European powers were pretty much spent. They had tried lots of different options, but they couldn't find this solution. And at this point, they were really desperate for a solution, something that could break the deadlock. And all of them were looking for a panacea, something that would be the aha moment to break this deadlock and be able to end the war. They had spent years looking for this panacea. What's the winning card we can play here? And it it wasn't in their hand. My opinion, I think the French and British, they kind of look more towards technology for the solution, specifically things like the tank. And I think the Germans relied more on tactical innovation with the elastic defense. But then, the, and it comes out in the book, what the Germans were relying on in the offense was their stormtrooper tactics. That was new. There was Major Willie Rohr was kind of the guy that he was the focal point for getting it set up. And he had a school for it. He trained his guys in it. The idea was that you would have a mix of different weapons down at the lower level you would have individual soldiers shooting and moving and communicating individually. You would bypass strong points, and you would infiltrate to the rear. And that was new. They used it in the 1918 Spring Offensive. It was working for them, and they talk about it in the book. The Germans broke through. They were 40 miles from Paris. Just my opinion, I don't think they really had a plan for exploiting that success, but it was working, and that is what is uh, brought up in the book. Well, Case in the book makes a point that the U.S. was using outdated tactics because they hadn't learned the lessons from you know, the French and the English. I would argue that not enough of the leaders had learned the lessons I think a lot of the leadership had saw this coming, saw some of these lessons, but they had that challenge of trying to communicate those lessons throughout the entire force in that short a time, and it was just a bridge too far for them. But the other point would be they also were fighting to keep the American force intact, and I think those two things combined led to the U.S. using tactics during the the battles that was one or two behind the other. Once they got to Germany and they have the time to train, then they start practicing these squad size attacks that are coordinated uh, with multiple weapon systems within the, the squad or the platoon. And it really does form a basis for them and their thinking later on in their lives. You know, by 1918, you really see that the European powers have experienced what I would call a death of idealism in the trenches, and fatalism had taken over. The soldiers on both sides had lost that 1914 patriotism that they had at that point. Now it was all about survival and getting this thing over with in some way. And at some level, after going through that experience, every time they went into an attack that was going to end the war, they just didn't believe in it. And the great strength that the United States brought to it was this arrogance of ignorance. They just didn't know what they were getting into. And so when the U.S., went into to blunt the Germans offensive in 1918. They expected to win. 
there was this expectation that we're here and this thing's over with now. And while the Europeans are pessimist, the Americans bring an optimism that in some ways is what really helped flip the switch and end the war. It was fresh legs like you talked about, Bill. Yeah, I, I agree. The U.S. shows up. They are the fresh legs. It's like, you know, sending in the relief pitcher in the seventh inning. You co- just called them up from the, the minor leagues. I find it, it's in all the, you know, all the Marine Corps history, and it comes out in the book where the U.S. shows up and they're like, retreat, hell, we just got here. Well, and, the, you know, the French are walking along. They're all saying, fini la guerre. Well, there's a reason for the French perspective. And... If the U.S. wants to get on those trucks and go rolling up there and display all that Elon and everything, well, they can have at it, and their perspective is going to meet reality here pretty quick. I mean, you see this in Cates, too, right? When he talks about what he was like when they went into Bellow Wood and what he was like when they ended the war, in eight months, he was, yeah, we're done with this. We're not down for it. It wasn't that they were hesitant to go in the fight. But this idealism and it's all great and there's heroics and this sense of euphoria of going into battle and wanting to do it was replaced with, let's get this thing over with and done because I'm done with it. That attitude and just the sheer mass of men that was participating along with the technology, all rolls up into this ball and we start in the industrial revolution, <laughs> all rolls up and we start getting all these specialties. We get a Royal Tank Corps from the British. We get mining companies. Then we get aviation. Aviation starts off with just some reconnaissance, uh, scouting planes, and then all of a sudden develops through the war to where now you got combat patrols, you have bombers, you have... Uh, tactics that went from the lone wolf to all of a sudden uh, the flying circus where you have a wingman who's covering your six. So we see a lot of specialization, a lot of uh, things coming out of this war that's really an amazing time. There's no doubt. By the end of the war, all of the nations, their militaries look completely different than the militaries that they started with in 1914 in terms of the way they fight and the weapons mix they have in them. My opinion, I think the leading nations, they all learned different lessons from this war. They all look different from when they went in. They all took away different things from the experience. You know, for example, you look at the Germans, they put a lot of effort into after action in this thing, you know, under with Hans von Seck leading the charge there with all different committees studying different things and coming out with the troop leading manual and, and in 1933. Well, they did all that, but they really arrived at, okay, maneuver is where it's at. That's how you're going to avoid the trenches. Now, there's other reasons for it. They were had a, they were limited to a certain size army, so they had knew they had to be able to move it from frontier to frontier. But that was their answer. Meanwhile, the the French thought, okay, well, artillery and weight of fire is the big killer in the trenches. So we're going to build the Maginot Line. They're not going to have any. We're not going to be stuck in the trenches because they're, they're not going to get here. And I, I realize that's a simplification, but I think they arrived at that conclusion and. Everyone in the back of their mind going, it, 
I think this experience, it shaped how they prepared for World War II. And then during World War II, everyone was thinking, how do we avoid the trenches of World War I with guys like Montbatten and, uh, and everyone else who had been there and had to live through it? They're all looking for a way to win the next war at the end of this one. The Germans are doing it on the sly. Uh, as you said, they're forming a, a solid core of German officers and, and senior staff that can transfer the, the Blitzkrieg idea, which is to penetrate and then exploit using a com- combined arms. And they're doing it all on the sly. They're sending guys to Spain, and they're also conducting some maneuvers, supposedly hidden, in Russia. And Russia is looking at that, and they're developing a, a concept called the deep battle. Over here in the U.S., uh, I think, really, we, we looked at air power and armor. And with our terrain here in the United States being so big, we were really looking at the distances. Uh, you see Patton in the, U- in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s. He's in Louisiana and, Tex- and Texas. He's testing. But underneath all of that is really the idea of maneuver. Don't get bogged down in those trenches. The bomber mafia comes out of this as well, right? This whole concept that the bombers are always going to go through. And you see all this development of air strategy post-World War One, And it's all designed, like you said, Bill, is to avoid this lockup in the trenches again. The concept that we're, we're going to destroy the enemy's ability to wage war from the air. You know, you also see things like this airborne concept. We're going to put armies over the top of an enemy and seize key terrain and then exploit those maneuvers with ground forces um, in a more conventional sense. So you see all of these different tactical concepts being developed that are all designed to avoid what we just went through in World War I. And this idea of, okay, we got to learn from what we just did or what we're doing now and what's going on in the world in order to get ready for what's coming up, this still goes on and it's a never-ending process. You know, for example, a couple years ago, cyber wasn't a warfighting function. The cyber domain wasn't a thing. To date myself, you would walk into an office and if someone had a computer on their desk, they were, you know, deemed a geek. Well, that's changed. If you are going to be if you are going to be good today, you better know a lot about cyber and if you neglect it, you do so at your peril. Same thing with space. Before, that was not even a, a, a warfighting domain. And then it started as something someone else did. Well, now a lot of people are worried about space. I would argue same thing with special operations. I think they used to work. In, they were much more of an isolated niche thing. Well, now they're much more central and they're much more integrated in everything we do. So this idea of trying to learn and stay current, well, it's still going on and we need to do it. But, you know, with all that said, we have not talked about chemical weapons yet, and that is big in this book, and it's big in World War I, too. So why don't we dive into that? Just like the other innovations we talked about, chemical weapons, they were developed and used to break the stalemate of the trenches and provide the means to get to the green fields beyond and finish things, uh, allow maneuver to take place. You know, initially... 
these systems were very primitive and lacked really the ability to be employed in a manner that would allow that breakthrough to happen. And over time, the systems developed in terms of the different types of chemicals they were using. The Germans started with like chlorine gas in 1915, I think, and the solutions to counteract it were relatively easy for the British and the French to come up with. Then they transitioned to phosgene in 1916, and then the real killer comes in 1917 when they start using mustard gas. And mustard gas is really the king of the gases. When you look at the casualties that were produced in World War I, mustard produces well over 70% of them. And it was really effective as a casualty producer. It's not about killing everybody. It's about putting people off the battlefield for months at a time. And mustard was ideal for that. Uh, yeah, you're right. These things did start primitive. The first iteration was a bunch of huge sausage-shaped canisters that were filled with gas that were carried up to the trench and then uh, hooked up to some, you know, some plumbing. And then uh, on command, when the wind was right, they would all open these these cylinders. Hopefully, this this you know the wind would carry this brewing cloud of gas over to the enemy side, and uh, then you'd go charging into it afterwards. So yeah, this is that's how it started. Very Doctor Evil, Doctor, and it's very crude. And then they. That only got them so far, and then it got developed into uh, where they could put it in artillery rounds, and they tried to get a little more slick with how they used it, specifically by mixing it with the uh, high-explosive rounds so that it could cause problems for the enemy. Okay, if you're going to you're going to jump in a hole to get out of the artillery, the high explosive, well, that's going to be where the mustard gas is going to collect. So you're going to jump out of the hole and expose yourself to the uh, high explosive. So, uh, you know, you're, it's creating problems for your enemy. And they also used it to, uh, you know, block crossroads or, or shoot it at enemy artillery positions to slow down counter battery fire because that artillery crew is now under fire. They've got to stop what they, they're doing and put all their uh, chemical equipment on. So, yeah, it went from just gas cylinders to artillery rounds, and they tried to get a little more slick with how they used it. It's, it's, it's horrible. And, and what Cates and the others in the book are seeing are these huge physical pain, amounts of pain with the burns, asphyxia, blindness. Uh, the skin is reacting. The clothing of that time is, is absorbing these droplets of the gas and you know, what do you do? And often, like Tony said, it just doesn't get the combatant off the field, but it, it provides a slow death days and, and weeks later. What they tried to do to counteract this initially was what they called a gag. And it was just a piece of cloth wrapped around your mouth and nose. And these wraps uh, started with being soaked in water then baking soda, then water, baking soda, and urine. Um, yeah, hey, you see the gas cow coming, it's time to take a pee. So the ammonia, uh, but in the urine, would react with the chlorine, etc. But what happened then was as the Germans developed their, their different uh, types of munitions and gases, they started progressing with mass also. 
And for example, the French added the goggles uh, to the to the gag. Then the Germans added a canister uh, so that they could swap out different types of filters uh, for different types of gases. The British added some hoods and some straps. But and it wasn't until 1916 that the first gas masks were distributed to the Allies in the front. Of course, uh, we didn't have all the filters, or the U.S. didn't have all the filters to protect uh, against some types of gas. That's why the German mask was start uh, was considered to be superior. And actually, today the gas masks that we see today are all variants of those gas masks that were issued out finally in 1918 um, by the Germans. So while they developed the gas masks, they didn't really develop any uh, suits or what we see as a chemical biohazard suit. Uh, no suits were available or invented to protect against that mustard gas. This, I don't think it got really beyond the primitive stage, so that you're faced with this horrific weapon which denies you the ability to do something as simple as breathe, and then the response is, well, you pull a canvas and rubber bag over your head and cinch it down tight, and uh, that's supposed to get you through. Well, it makes it hard to breathe when you've got the thing on makes it hard to see, makes it hard to talk. You can't focus, you can't concentrate, and it basically it makes it difficult to do anything in life, but that's your best option. You have to do it if you're going to get through. Even today, wearing a gas mask is really, really difficult to do. And the masks today have been improved and they've been studied and enhancements have been put into them. But no matter what they've done to them, you know, they're still hot. It's really, really difficult to breathe in them. It gives you a headache immediately. As soon as you put that thing on, within five minutes, it feels like someone has put an ice pick in the back of your head. They're claustrophobic. You can't see really all that well with them. And the new ma gas masks have drinking tubes, so you can attach your canteen to it. So that helps a little bit. But the ones that they were using in World War I, obviously you couldn't do that. And they were in them for hours and hours and hours at a time so they can dehydrate you at the same time. You know, we used to do PT runs in gas masks. And people, when you take that thing off, it looks like your head's a tomato because it's bright red. And people wig out when they're wearing these things. And really what happens is all people really want to do when they have a gas mask on is to get it off because of all of the things I just talked about. But, you know, the author talks about this. Cates's company would be under gas attack. There were several gas attacks that they went through, and they would be in those masks and in that environment for hours at a time. I think there was one period, it was like 13 hours, where they're um, under artillery barrage and getting gassed at the same time. And people got to the point where they just ripped off their gas masks because they were so crazed, if you will. And of course, they immediately became casualty. Some of them died. So although things have improved today, it's still not easy to wear a gas mask. And now if you add the protective clothing, uh, it even makes it more difficult. I did think of a, a way our listeners uh, could get an idea of what it was like in World War I uh, with, the, uh, with the primitive gas mask or with the protective clothing. 
So, listeners, if, if you want to try this and get an idea, here's it, here it is. Drink six to eight glasses of beer. Wait 30 minutes. Then go to the kitchen and get a set of, of oven mitts. You know, those big mittens. Now off to the bathroom and try to use the toilet without soiling yourself. Okay, that's what it's like uh, wearing protective. Now, if you want to add the mask, go ahead, get a trash bag with the drawstrings and two thirds of the way up or towards the bottom, I should say, cut two holes about a half inch in diameter, about seven inches apart. Okay, put that back on uh, your head. Now head back to the bathroom. So as you can, as you can imagine from that description, that's how painful it was and then add to the fact that you can't see it's dark you can't hear because of all the explosions and you think somebody's coming to kill you so it, it was just horrific on second thought let's not do that all right because what we'll have is a bunch of people passed out in the the bathrooms uh lying in a puddle of pee with their wives showing up or whatever and thinking they're like auto arousers. So let's wave off on the using the trash bag and or oven mitts and a sixer to figure out what this is like. Just trust us. Um, it's not something you want to do. Well, that, you know, again, yeah, I'm not going to, I get the, I get the idea and, uh, you know, I'm putting the trash bag away now. Anyhow, um, so they, they tried this, and it was supposed to be, again, another new thing that was going to provide the breakthrough, and it didn't, it just, but it did have horrific effects. Just some rough numbers, it looks like about 1% of all the deaths were caused by chemical weapons. It looks like something like 1.2 million casualties or and 90,000 deaths across all the all the combatants. I think for the U.S. it was something like 1,400 deaths were caused by chemical weapons. So again, it was one of these things. It was new. It was supposed to provide uh, this huge breakthrough in people being people. They developed this horrific thing, used it, and it's here to stay. I think the only thing it really did was just add to the misery of World War One. And that misery, it, it wasn't just on the military. And, it, you know, when you talk about reduce or loosening clouds of, of poisonous gas and then counting on the wind to take it towards the enemy, it took it into the civilian areas, too. The other thing it did was if they dropped it on a crossroads or they dropped it uh, to the rear, pretty much it wiped out the transportation of that time because it was horse-drawn. And those, uh, those horses didn't have gas masks. You did see some pictures of that later in the war, but uh, it was taking them out. Uh, I did a little research and I saw that uh, overall in World War I, they used 130,000 tons of chemical weapons. So it was, it was a big player. What's so interesting about chemical weapons in World War I is they were so horrific. And they left these indelible memories on all of the participants. That, and they generated such shock within the civilian community because the, as the casualties would come back blind or throwing up their lungs during and after the war, that it created this fear, rightfully so, and abhorrence that when you go into World War II, it, it does affect how people think about it. 
you're right. After all that, this is the one thing that's like, oh no, we're not going to, that is so horrific that we don't want to revisit the whole thing. Here's two data points to think about. These chemicals were so bad that guys like Juan Hitler and Stalin didn't even use them. And on the U.S. side, the U.S. thought about, seriously considered using chemical weapons on Iwo Jima, uh, and then said, no, we're not doing that. But then a couple months later, it was dropping atomic weapons on cities. So that's the kind of lasting impression that these chemical weapons and that experience left on the human psyche. And on that somewhat somber and down note, why don't we wrap things up? Tony, you got a shout out this month? Oh, yeah, I've definitely got a shout out. My shout-out goes to the U.S. Space Force. You know, December 20th, I don't know if you guys know this, but December 20th is their birthday. And I just want to wish all those guardians out there a belated happy second birthday. Evidently, they hold their birthday balls, you know, just like the rest of the services. They get the cake, and they cut it, and they got the oldest and youngest. I mean, come on, the oldest. Um, In any case, the Space Force hold their balls in places like the Beverly Hills Hilton. Because, you know, evidently one of the Space Force traditions is to turn their ball into into a way to network with the industry that they work with so that, you know, they can do a little job hunting while celebrating their long and illustrious history. No kidding, no kidding. You know, contractors are encouraged to buy tables for $3,600. And when you do, you get four guardians at your table. So anyways, I just want to wish that the Guardians and the Primes out there are enjoying their rousing comradeship at the second Space Force Ball. Wow. That's, uh, that's a, uh, an event that uh, I'll, I'll be happy to miss. So, <laughs> oh, Tony. Um, hey, my shout out is really to acknowledge a what I view as a significant figure in history, you know, John M. Browning. And he played a role in our book uh, that we've just reviewed. He was born in January 23rd of 1855 and passed away on November 26 in 1926. You know, uh, he started inventing weapons at the age of 13. He worked on pistols, rifles, machine guns. Uh, How many designs he made uh, may not ever be truly known. Uh, we do know that uh, just for Winchester alone, he designed 44 rifles and 13 shotguns, uh, many which were produced and s- some are still uh, active today. I think his most famous firearms were the Browning Automatic Rifle, the Bar, the 191930 caliber machine gun, uh, my all-time favorite machine gun, the M2 50 caliber, which uh, still used to this day. And, and finally, probably one of the greatest his- pistols in history, uh, also still available in your local gun stores today and variants of, is that 1911 45 caliber. And here's a, two pieces of trivia also in regards to Mr. Browning. Uh, he also developed the cartridges for those. He was the inventor of the 50 caliber round, uh, also the 45 ACP and the 380. Uh, the nine millimeter, he made a nine millimeter long 
that was initially used in his Browning high-power pistol, which also was a favorite for the European forces. And he had one son who was fighting in World War I. And during that time, the 30 caliber machine gun that Mr. Browning invented and the patents uh, uh, tied to it, uh, he donated to the United States government. So uh, he didn't collect any uh, patent money off of some of his inventions and gave that to the cause. So I just thought a shout out to a significant figure this time. Uh, and so that's where I'm at with it. Okay, well, my shout-out this month uh, coming out of the holiday season is for the uh, Marine Corps Reserve's Toys for Tots program. And I, what it is is every year the Marine Corps Reserve during the holidays will uh, collect and distribute toys to uh, children that are someone that might otherwise not get any holiday cheer. Now, uh, this is kind of a – it is a large program. It's been around for decades. It's nationwide and took me back to the – Fox Company 225 days in Albany, New York from 30 plus years ago, where we would move over and distribute over 100,000 toys uh, just in in that area. So uh, again, worthwhile and uh, just putting a push for them coming out of the holiday season. So with all that said, Tony, why don't you start wrapping it up for us? What are we going to talk about next month? Sure. Next month, we're scheduled to review The Coldest Winter by David Halberstrom. I hope that both of you have been reading it. It's a little hefty, but as you you go through it, I think you're really going to enjoy it. The Coldest Winter covers the first year of the Korean War and provides readers really an excellent, I think, explanation of why the Chinese entered the war and what happened during that first year. The book also provides really, really well-written descriptions, I think, of all the key players from MacArthur, Kim Il-sung, Mao, military leaders like General Ridgway, Walker, and Almond. Overall, I consider it a must-read if you want to really understand the Forgotten War. Based on what's going on in the Pacific today, it really should provide us a lot to discuss next month, so I'm excited about that. So if you're interested in the Korean War um, or what's going on today out in the Pacific, um, please join us for our discussion uh, next month. I would also like to wish everyone a happy and healthy new year and hope that uh, 2022 is better than 2021. And as always, Kevin, save yourself some money and support your local library. And also remember, if you want to find out more or get in touch with us, uh, please check out our website, odinandasop.com, all one word. There's also a PayPal link on there if you care to support the show with a donation. And uh, you can always follow us on Twitter as well. And meanwhile, stay on the net. Out here.